In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 102. The Hebrew version of the scripture, and nearly all the versions, give the following title to this psalm. Each psalm has a title. So what is the title? A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So this afflicted person borrowed his tone and some of his expressions from the book of Job. There are many similarities between what was mentioned in this psalm and the book of Job. Because Job is the Old Testament's greatest example of affliction. Also, the afflicted one can represent Jerusalem. Because this psalm describes Jerusalem in a state of ruin. If this is taken as a literal ruin, not spiritual ruin, this means this psalm may have been written by those in exile when toward the end of captivity they were almost worn out with oppression cruelty and distress you know all the israelites were taken into captivity the babylonian captivity and during this time jerusalem and the temple were turned into ruin who wrote it we don't know but there are several opinions about the author and its occasion and its date. According to some scholars, this psalm was written after the return of the scribe Azra from captivity with a mandate to rebuild the temple of the Lord, as we read in Nehemiah chapter 1. So, in that case, the author would be either Azra, Nehemiah, or someone contemporary of them. Because Azra and Nehemiah returned to build the temple of God. Other scholars think that this psalm was written at the end of Babylonian captivity and represented the cry outs of the captives who almost losing hope in going back home. They lost hope. So they were seeking from the Lord to fulfill his promise and to restore them back to their city. Others think that the author is David. Either in the time of Absalom rebellion, his son Absalom when he rebelled against David and wanted to take the kingdom from his father or maybe not connected to a particular occasion but he wrote it in a spirit of prophecy about what will happen to Israel in the future also in this psalm there is reference to Zion and we know Zion is a symbol of the New Testament church so maybe this psalm is a prophecy about the gospel times when Christians were persecuted and martyred and killed. 
St. Paul in his letter to Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 10 to 12, he quoted this psalm. He quoted verse 25 and 26 and he applied them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means this psalm has reference to the days of the Messiah and it speaks either of his affliction or the affliction of his church for the sake of Christ. So the afflicted one here can be Christ. And according to St. Augustine, this prayer is presented by the Lord Christ together with his church, the body, because we are the body of Christ. As Christ, the head, was persecuted, afflicted, crucified, and his body, us, we are persecuted also. So a prayer of the afflicted understood of Christ, who became poor for our sakes and was afflicted of God and men. St. Augustine asks, if it is he, if the afflicted one is Christ, then how is he poor? Because in this psalm refers that he is poor. So he's saying how Christ is poor. He said, because he received our poverty when he was clothed in the form of a servant, emptying himself in his incarnation. Why God did this? Lest you, you should dread his riches, and in your beggarly state should not dare approach him. So if we know we are very poor and he's very rich, we will be afraid to approach him. That's why he put on the form of a servant and he was clothed with our poverty. He made himself poor in order to make us rich. He took what's ours and he gave us what is his. Also, this psalm very well applied to any afflicted person when we go through difficult time and suits the believer in his spiritual strife seeking the divine help. Many commentators regard this psalm as not a prayer of one person but exclamation of the whole nation. But at the same time when we read the psalm we find it expresses the intensity of personal feeling. That's why we can say this psalm, they mourn it over both their personal and national affliction. So the person who wrote this psalm is mourning over his personal affliction and the affliction of his nation. The psalmist is indeed afflicted and while he does pour out his heart to God, we also see that he is full of confidence in God and in his promises to his people. He is confident that God will fulfill his promises and he will deliver him from his affliction. This has been regarded as one of the seven repentant psalms. You know, in the book of Psalms, there are seven psalms of repentance, not only Psalm 50. So, Psalm 102, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 
Psalm 38, Psalm 51 or 50 in the Septuagint, Psalm 130 and 143. These are the seven Psalms of repentance. This Psalm is 28 verses from 1 to 11, lamentation of the poor, from 12 to 22, the gracious Lord and the care for his people. 23 to 28, the poor praises and glorifies God. So this poor and afflicted person praises and glorifies God. We will not cover the whole psalm tonight, maybe only half of it. So let's start by verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. So the entire Psalm 102 is a prayer and it serves as a good example of what it looks like to cry out to God in our time of need. So when we go through a difficult time, this Psalm is very suitable to pray and to pour our hearts and to cry to God. It can be seen throughout the Psalm, but especially in verse 1 and 2 that the psalmist knows that God's intervention and God's salvation are his only hope. There is no hope except in God. That's why he said, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of, the, of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. Because if you don't answer me speedily, I will be gone. And according to its title, this psalm comes from an afflicted one. And here the psalmist begs God to hear his prayer. Knowing that if the God of goodness and compassion heard his prayer, he would not ignore the plea. He will deliver him from this affliction. So the psalmist is in a situation where he feels deep distress, deep distress. He lifts a pure cry to God. The psalmist supplicates to God his Savior to hear his prayer and to let his cries enter into the throne of his grace. There are two terms here, prayer and cry. Hear my prayer and let my cry come to you. So prayer and cry complete one another and together reveal the extent of the urgency that his condition has become. Answer me speedily, it's urgent. Let my cry come to you. His prayer from his heart, but this prayer is accompanied with an outward expression of his sincerity. He is crying. It is not a silent prayer or a mental prayer, but it is a loud and earnest cry. He asks God not to hide his face from him. And this is the primary and the, and the principal petition of a poor man in trouble or if a repentant sinner. When we fall into sin, we feel that God is hiding his face from us. That's why 
what would be our prayer? Don't hide your face from me. The affliction itself is bad enough, but it is made worse beyond the measure when we feel that God doesn't see us or doesn't care about us, hiding his face from us. When we have the sins that God's favor and face are evident, we can endure any affliction. If God is with me, I can endure any affliction. St. Augustine comments on hide your face from me and says, When did God turn away his face from his son? If we said this son about Christ, so the father never turned his face away from the Jesus. When did the father turn away his face from Christ? But for the sake of the poverty of my members, turn not away your face from me. Whatsoever day I am troubled, incline your ear unto me. So, it is for our poverty, because the Lord put on our poverty on him. That's why on the cross he said, My father, my father, why thou have forsaken me? So the first petition, do not hide your face. The second petition, incline your ear to me. But this petition is consequence of the first. For the moment God begins to look upon us, not hiding his face, at this moment we begin to see our own impurity and nakedness and our own poverty. The person then begins to be troubled and afflicted because God sees my spiritual poverty. But I want to reappear to the Supreme Physician who is rich in mercy. For we know that God never despises an afflicted spirit and a contrite heart. That's why appealing to his mercy we say incline your ear to me. That's why he says with confidence, in the day of my trouble, incline your ear to me. I need you right now, even if I am in the depth of sin, I need you. Incline your ear to me. And he repeats it, in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Whenever I shall be in trouble and call upon you, hear me speedily. St. Jerome says, Do not hide your face from me. This prayer could only be uttered by him, by Christ, who prays with a pure heart and a blameless conscience. Because a sinner would not dare to say to God, Do not hide your face from me. Because God will see my nakedness, my poverty. But rather a sinner would say, hide your face from my sins. Turn your face away from my sins. And while the psalmist never fully identifies the nature of his suffering or his affliction, but it is evident that he is in dire and desperate situation.
You can see how he described it himself in verse 3. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. He uses vivid language to describe his weakness and his feeling of frailty. He expresses that his life seems short and fleeting, and that outside of God's intervention, he will soon pass away. My days are consumed like smoke. His days passed like meaningless smoke. So, in a style similar to Job, the psalmist described his agony. Pain from deep inside his body made his bones feel as if they were burning, and my bones are burned like a hearth. His heart ached and he had no appetite. The imagery that the psalmist uses suggests that he is suffering physically, but it is also obvious that he is burdened spiritually and emotionally. My days are consumed like smoke, meaning disappear, pass away into nothingness. They are spent in affliction and seem to accomplish nothing. So after he said in verse 2, answer me speedily, now he is giving a reason why he asked God to answer him speedily. The reason is that man's life draws to a close with the greatest rapidity, like a smoke will disappear quickly. And through trouble and grief, his bones, bones are the strongest part of the body and the support of the body, but his bones were so weakened that they were as if they had been burned up as Zahir by fire. Then the psalmist continues lamenting his past state, and he said in verse 4, My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. His heart, the heart as you know is the center of vital force, is dried up like a plant struck by the fierce heat of the sun and withered. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I, I forget to eat my bread. Sorrow and sickness have deprived him of all appetite for food. Usually grief has the effect of taking away the appetite. But maybe he means that he is an, in a complete immersion in trouble that everything else is forgotten. He cannot remember anything except his trouble. Also, grief and fasting are naturally associated with each other. For example, Ahab is struck with one kind of grief, David with another kind when he lost his son, and Daniel with a third kind of, of grief. 
But the three of them forgot or refused to eat their bread. So grief and fasting goes hand in hand. Verse 5 Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. This was taken from Job chapter 19, verse 20. He was so weak and thin that there seemed to be nothing between the bones and the skin. Some interpret these verses of the feeling of the sinner. The sound of my groaning under the burden of sin and the pressure of affliction. And from his constant lamentations, his flesh neglects its daily food. That's why his bone clang to the skin. Also, it is an evident approval of fasting and penance, being both the signs and the fruit of true repentance. Godly sorrow and fasting are fruit of true repentance. And according to St. Augustine, this is the groaning of the righteous. The groaning of the righteous, they groan over their sins. He said beautifully, St. Augustine, many groan and I also groan. Why he is groaning, St. Augustine? Because they are groaning for the wrong reason. Even for this I groan because they groan for a wrong reason. How? For example, that man has lost a piece of money. He groans. He has lost faith. He groans not. So, when he loses his faith, he doesn't groan. But if he lost some money, he groans. I weigh the money and the faith. And I find more cause for groaning for him who groans not as he ought. So St. Augustine is groaning for those who are groaning for the wrong reason. For example, they are groaning for losing money. But they don't groan at all if they lost their faith. Another example, a person commits fraud and rejoices because he gained some money with this fraud. Rejoices with what gain and with what loss. Yes, he gained the money, but he has lost righteousness. But he rejoices. For the latter reason, he who knows how to groan, groans. If I lost righteousness, I should groan. The member that is near to the head, to Christ, who righteously clings to Christ's body, groans for this reason, if he lost righteousness. But the carnal person do not groan for this reason if he lost righteousness. And they call themselves to be groaned for. So people will groan for them because they groan for wrong reason. For we wish to correct them. We want to correct them. Don't groan over losing some money, but groan if you lost righteousness. And when we cannot correct them, we groan for them. Verse 6. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone 
on the house top. So he liked himself to three birds, pelican, owl, and sparrow. He felt like a lonely and restless bird, pelican, owl, and sparrow. Pelican is classed as an unclean creature and not to be eaten by the people, according to the Old Testament. Also, pelican is known as a solitary and mournful bird. So the pelican is a very vivid picture of sorrow and shows how this man feels being depressed and miserable. What about the owl? The owl is a well-known bird which dwells in solitudes and old ruins. And it seeks such places of dwelling and is also an unclean creature not to be eaten by the people. So the owl is a symbol of desolation by its appearance and by its sad cry. Pelican is a symbol of sorrow, depression, misery. And the owl is a symbol of desolation. So the psalmist compares himself to solitude-loving birds, the sparrow, which haunt desolate places and ruins, producing weird and mournful cries. The sparrow here, sparrow is very friendly bird, but here the sparrow is alone on the house top, which means he is ill. This bird, the sparrow, is ill or lost spouse. He is saying to cry with tears and to fast. He unites solitude and watching because he said, I lie awake and I am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. So he's not eating and he doesn't sleep. His nights are sleepless. Trouble usually drives sleep from the eyes. And this person is kept awake at night, which is a common effect of grief. As we know, sparrow is associable and would normally be found in groups. But when the Psalms talk about sparrow alone on housetop, he is speaking of what is out of character. It is not the character of the sparrow. And this is unnatural for this bird. This would tend to indicate that the sparrow was either ill or it had lost its mate. According to St. Augustine, these three kinds of birds, pelican, owl, and sparrow, mentioned by the psalmist, refer to the care of the Lord Jesus Christ to three classes of men. Pelicans who live in wilderness are the non-believers because they live in wilderness, away from the house of God. What about the owls? The owls who live among the ruins are the apostates, apostates those who denied the faith. So they were Christian but denied the faith and now they live in darkness. What about the sparrows 
who live on the house tops lonely. Those are Christian only by names. They walk look warmly in what they believe. Verse 8 My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who drive me swear an oath against me. So there is another reason for his affliction. So it's not only the poor health, but his enemies are set against him. They oppose to him with constant and continual disapproval and rejection all day long. Their wrath was unrelenting and unceasing, accompanied with insults. So the psalmist grieves was their subject. They added a tone of mocking and cursing because they dried me and swear an oath against me. They were so furious that they bound themselves by oath to destroy him, exactly like the Jews were against Christ and sought to take away his life. St. Augustine interpreted verse 8 about Christ. With their mouths they praised Christ, but in their hearts they were laying snares for him. Hear how they praised him. They told him, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Neither care for any man. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? And this is actually the trap to catch him. Verse 9 For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. I have eaten ashes. It's a figurative expression. So the life of the psalmist seemed to be constant mourning. Mourning and tears are as it were his food and drink. Ashes is a symbol of mourning in the scripture. And instead of eating bread, he has laid it down in dust and ashes. And tears have fallen into the cup from which he drank. That's why his tears became part of his drink. So the idea here is that he shed many tears and that even when he took his food, there was no relief to his grief. There is another reason actually. That's the most important reason for his grief. Verse 10. Because your indignation, speaking to God, and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. You exalted me and then you threw me away. So this suffering is the punishment of sin. That's how he feels. The mourning was all the more bitter. It, it became so difficult because of the sense that this affliction came as some kind of punishment from God. That's why he said, don't hide your face from me. What gave him the greatest uneasiness? Not so much the reproach of the enemies or his other outward affliction, but the sense 
that he had of God's wrath and indignation. And also the psalmist punished himself because he saw God's anger and indignation were lighted up against him for the sins he had committed. And that he saw because you lifted me up and cast me away. Before he fell in these sins, he was raised to highest dignity by God's friendship and adoption. He enjoyed this fellowship with God. He was lifted up. Then, because of his own sin, he was degraded to an enemy. Sinners may imagine that the loss they suffer by committing sins is a small thing. But in reality, what we lose when we commit sin is great. As he said, you cast me away. Cast me away means complete demolition. It's like a vessel thrown on the ground from a high place. That's why this vessel is broken into a thousand pieces along with losing its high position. And so with the sinner who blinded by the desires of the flesh does not see the injury done to him, this complete demolition. Then he said, last verse in the first part, my days are like a shadow that lengthens. Shadow. And I wither away like a grass. So the shadow made by the descending sun was about to disappear altogether. At the sunset, there is a shadow and it is disappearing. So he said, I am disappearing. I am dying. It had become less distinct and clear and it would soon vanish. So the psalmist is old before his time. That's why he said later, don't take me in the middle of my days. The sheets of evening have come upon him when he should have been in his midday brightness. Overwhelmed with a sense of divine rejection, as he said, you have lifted me up and cast me away. So he felt that his life was short and had little meaning. You can see here how the psalmist is a very downcast man and no doubt in his present state of mind consider his situation is hopeless. He saw life's sunset quickly approaching. He's dying and this lying wait on the horizon. After all this very, very negative picture, you can see a turn in the tune and in the words starting from verse 12. The previous verses from 1 to 11 spoke of the psalmist's weakness and the temporary nature of life. But verse 12 gives a sharp and wonderful contrast. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. So he said, I know my days like shadow and wither away like grass, but God shall endure forever. He's eternal. That's why the psalmist can reject all self-reliance. I cannot rely on myself. 
And I hold on to a true reliance upon God who endures forever. Although the psalmist has been cast down from an exalted position, though kingdoms rise and fall, yet God is unchanged. God's purposes will abide. His promises will be fulfilled. His character is the same. He doesn't change. Generations comes and go, and the memory of many men perishes, but the name of God endures. He is the object of adoration and praise. So now the psalm draws upon God as he revealed himself in the past to his people. What is this picture of God? In Exodus 3.15 he said, This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. This is how God revealed himself to Moses. He is the God who has been faithful to the forefathers of Israel and initiated covenant with them. He is this faithful God that will continue to uphold his end of the covenant. Even if we break the covenant from our side, he will continue to hold his end of the covenant. Some fathers see Christ in this verse, verse 12, saying that the psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit prophesizes the future restoration and renovation of the church through Christ as the Apostle Paul explained in the first chapter of Hebrews. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. That's the time of incarnation. So, the Apostle wishing in that chapter to prove the divinity of Christ. First, by quoting the word in Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your name endures forever. So now he proves the divinity of Christ. Then the words of verse 25 of this psalm, in which he says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You are the creator. You're, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heaven are the work of your hands. They, the heaven and earth, will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like our garment grow old. Like a clock, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So, he's speaking here about the divinity of Christ. The verse 25 speaks about Christ, then verse 12 speaks about Christ also, when he said, your name endures forever. Though the psalmist goes on to declare something that will happen in the future. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her, Yes, the set time has come. It's the time of incarnation. So this is a prophecy about incarnation. And by the way, this is the psalm of the first Sunday of Kirk, when we are in preparation of the Feast of Nativity. 
His knowledge of the nature of God anchors his faith in what God will do. After he was hopeless, but he said, No, I know you will have compassion on Zion. Zion has gone through some trouble, and perhaps God's enemies have taken over it. Whether Zion is Jerusalem, or Zion is the church, or Zion is me. Zion on which God would have mercy, not only the city, but the people belonging to the city, us. And what is significant here is the idea of the appointed time. Yes, the set time has come. The fullness of time. Let's understand this. God is not reacting to situation. So God did not wait until Zion was ruined and said, what I'm going to do. No, no, no. God is not reactive. But God sees before time and sits what he will do before that. And he will bring things to pass in the right time. He knows when to act. And when he acts, it is the best time to do so. What is the set time? Maybe the set time is the time fixed by Jeremiah after 70 years, the end of captivity and the restoration of Jerusalem. And also Daniel alluded to this in Daniel 9 verse 2. Also, while the psalmist was in deep affliction, but he has confidence that God would act and show mercy to Jerusalem once again. And the reason why the remembrance of your name to all generation, because God will not forget dealing mercifully with his people. So his name will be remembrance of your name to all generation because God is dealing with compassion and mercifully with his people. He will arise as if from long sleep and have mercy on Zion. With the eye of a prophet, the psalmist sees a future as if it were really present. It is a time of incarnation. This is the time which St. Paul spoke when he said, But when the fullness of time, the set time had come, God sent forth his son. Also Isaiah spoke, In the acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Also in explanation of St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he said, Behold now is the accepted time, behold now is the day of salvation. St. Jerome comments about, For the time to favor here is the set time has come. So St. Jerome says, Whether it is because of repentance, it is a time of mercy. Or because this verse refers to the second coming of the Savior, I wish he, us, who repents, would have confidence that the time of salvation has come and that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. So he's saying, if you are repentant, don't be afraid in the second coming. It is a time of mercy and compassion. Verse 14 which will be the middle of the psalm, because 28 verses, so we'll stop here. He said, For your servants take pleasure in her stones, in the stones of Zion, and show favor 
to her dust, even the dust of Zion. The psalmist was overwhelmed by a sense of his own ruin and need, as he explained from verse 1 to 11. Yet he did not allow that to turn him completely inward, to be self-centered. But he cared for the community, he cared for his city, and he said, your servants take pleasure in her stones. So now he's making another argument why God should arise and have compassion on Zion. Because your servants, O Lord, are looking with yearning love toward Zion in its ruin, even to the dust and stones. Even the broken stones and scattered heaps of debris, which are all that remain of it after the ruin, are very dear to them. But as St. Peter told us, we are the stones in the church of God. So if every stone of God's city was precious to his servant, then by analogy, so is every stone representing the people of God in his great building. As St. Peter said, you also living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house. So who are the servants that are yearning for the stones? The servants are the apostles. The apostles who previously had been devoted to fishing and such humble pursuits, now after have been instructed by Christ and being filled by the Holy Spirit to establish the church, devoted themselves to that one object alone after abandoning all the cares of the world. What this one object? Take pleasure in the living stones. The building of the new Jerusalem, the church, and the collecting and placing of the living stone, us, together, that were to be built upon the foundation that already laid Jesus Christ. But he used the stones and dust. Who are the stones and who are the dust? The stones in this verse are the steady and perfect, the strong Christian. The dust represent the weak and the infirm. That's why St. Paul said about the weak, receive one who is weak in the faith. And we then who are strong ought to bear with the scrubbles of the weak, the dust, and not to please ourselves. Romans 15, 1. St. Paul also said, Who is weak and I am not weak? 2 Corinthians 11, 29. So, we'll stop here at verse 14 and we'll continue next time God willing. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.